You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Word to the Gospel of John. John 11. Our focus today will be on verses 17 through 44. John 11 and verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. When she heard it, She rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, giver of your Son, your Son who's risen and who, with your Son, have sent your Spirit and have given us your word. Father, come in power now for the glory of of the name of your Son. Bless the preaching of the word of Christ with your Spirit. Kindle our faith afresh 
that He is indeed the resurrection and the life, that Christ is risen, He's risen indeed, that the Spirit abides with us by the purchase of His blood, that You will come again. Stir us now. And for those who are dead, spiritually dead, may they hear Christ in the Word, by Your Spirit. May they come forth living. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Signs signify. John wrote this gospel highlighting particular signs so that what was signified thereby might be believed. John 20, 30, and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. What's signified by this sign in particular is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. By belief in Christ, you're to have life in His name. And the life that you're to have is His resurrection life. You're meant to believe that Jesus is the Christ, which means believing He is the resurrection and the life. And that by believing, you have that very life. Resurrection life in Christ. Now the first 16 verses of John 11 set you up to properly understand the purpose of this sign with greater depth. And there we saw that this sign was for glory, it was for love, and it was for faith. It was for glory. John 11, 4. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So these signs reveal glory, the glory of Christ, and that glory is to be believed, and belief in that revealed glory magnify that revealed glory. This is for glory. It is for love. John 11, 5 through 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus stayed. Why did he stay? Because he loved them. How is it loving to stay? Because this sign was done for glory. And that greater glory being displayed is the most loving thing Jesus can do for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it was loving that it was for faith. 11, 14, and 15. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Now, it's important, that verse in particular, seeing that it's, for faith, and Jesus is glad that it's for their faith, is important to keep in our minds as we proceed and see the sorrow in this portion of John 11. Don't let the sorrow you see here erase the gladness you know Jesus approaches this sign with. These three whys carry over into our text this morning. Don't forget them as we move forward. It is for glory. Jesus tells Martha in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? It is for love. Verse 36, the Jews looking at Jesus as He wept said, See how He loved Him. And it is for faith. Jesus' conversation with Martha ends on this note. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And again, Jesus in his prayer says, I knew 
that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So these are the wise of raising Lazarus from the dead for glory, for love, and for faith. I've divided our text this morning, verses 17 through 44, into three sections, in each of which one member of this family that Jesus loves is the particular focus of our attention. The first one being Martha, verses 17 through 27. But before we see Martha come to Jesus, we see Jesus coming, verse 17. Now when Jesus came. The Jesus who stayed has now come. He stayed two days, and once he arrives, Lazarus has been dead four days. I think it's impossible to construct an exact timeline of how things have transpired. We don't know if these were inclusive days. So when Jesus stayed two days, does that include the day that he was told Or two days after that, we don't know if they're inclusive days. We don't know how long Jesus took on the journey. We don't know how long the journey was at minimum and how slowly Jesus might have taken it. What we know, I believe, is this. Whenever Jesus was told of Lazarus' illness, he knew Lazarus was still alive. He says, this illness does not lead to death. Lazarus is not dead at that point. And I believe it's clear that Jesus could have arrived in time to have been there before Lazarus' death. He knows once Lazarus has died, verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. He's dead, he explains to the disciples. Verse 14, Lazarus has died. And I think Jesus' words in verse 15, For your sake I'm glad that I was not there. The sister's response to us, Lord, if you had been here, everything suggests Jesus could have made it in time to heal Lazarus in his sickness. And then... As we saw with the healing of the official son, Jesus didn't need to be present in order to heal Lazarus from the sickness. So the Jesus who stayed has now come, and because of everything that's transpired in this, Lazarus now when Jesus has come is not just dead, he's four days dead. He's not mostly dead He is dead, dead. This makes the resurrection, this resurrection, stand out from the other two resurrection accounts that we have in the Gospels. This is different. There is some evidence, it's from a slightly later date, but it seems as this was kind of the folk Jewish belief, even at this time, that the soul hovered over the body for three days, And then the language is whenever the soul saw the corruption of the face, meaning, or the the color of its face had changed. When it saw decomposition set in, that at that point, the soul would leave to never return. So Lazarus, you see with this, is dead. Four days dead. And it's now that John tells us that Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and this does two things. First, it reminds us that this was a stop en route to Jerusalem. 11, 7 through 8. After this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus has not come simply to raise Lazarus. He's come to lay his life down. The stop at the grave 
of Lazarus could not have happened if Jesus was not journeying towards the cross. Second, this reminds us, or or it explains rather, why we see many Jews are coming out to this village. Bethany is near Jerusalem, two miles off, easy journey. And while most of the time we've seen the Jews referring to the leaders particularly, there are a few instances where it has a broad use. And so the Jews broadly are coming out to Martha and Mary to comfort and to console them. Everything in the Gospels that we have concerning Mary and Martha and Lazarus suggests that they were a well-to-do family, they were well-known, they were well-loved. And so many Jews are coming out to console them. And that's normal. You go to the grieving. And so it's striking that Martha, when she hears Jesus is coming, goes out to meet Him. It's normal to go to those who need comfort. But this is exceptional. Martha does not wait for Jesus to come. She goes to the only one who can give true comfort in the face of death. Jesus hasn't come to give the normal comfort and condolences. He's come to be the resurrection and the life. He's not come to comfort those who sit in mourning. He has come to raise the dead. But Mary, we see, verse 20, stays. Martha goes Mary stays. We shouldn't think less of her for this. Many have come to comfort them. Mary stays with them. And so from that angle alone, many have come out to comfort this family. Mary stays. Her behavior is understandable. But what's notable is how their behavior here and throughout the Gospels harmonizes. This resonates with what we have recorded in Luke, Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are troubled and anxious about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, just as unfortunate, though, as reading Mary's sitting in this instance as a slide on her character, I believe is importing Martha's demeanor in that instance into this present episode and looking poorly even on her words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died taking them to be a complaint or a rebuke. I don't see them as anything more than words of faith spoken out of grief. It's a faith that's evidenced by our next words. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Her obvious grief speaks to the weakness of her faith, and yet... It gives opportunity for faith to stand forth. The grief, it seems to be gnawing at her faith. And yet at the same time, that very grief allows her faith to stand out and shine brightly. There's weakness here, but there's strength. And when she says that she knows that even now, God will give him whatever he asks. I think it's clear she doesn't have in mind a right now resurrection as being anywhere among the possibilities. It's plain by our words in verses 23 and 24. Your brother will rise again. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And when Jesus says, roll away the stone, she says, he'll stink. So I don't think she has in her mind a right now resurrection. But I think what she is saying, even though my brother has died, my faith lives. This doesn't cause me to doubt who you are. Whatever you ask from the Father, He will give you. And these grief 
faith-filled, faith-fused words are surprisingly prophetic. If Jesus was there, her brother would not have died. And Jesus is glad that was not so, we know. He didn't want to be there for a sick Lazarus. He wanted to be there for a dead Lazarus, a four-day dead Lazarus, that it might be revealed that he is the resurrection and the life. He wanted to come to a four-day dead Lazarus for glory, for love, and for faith. Faith that he is the Christ who is the resurrection and the life. Why was Jesus not there? So that it might be manifest that indeed, whatever Jesus asked from the Father, the Father would give him. And isn't it notable how we have never seen Jesus pray before any of these signs? But now we have Martha saying, I know that whatever you ask from the Father, he will give you. And then with this sign, we see Jesus pray before he calls Lazarus forth from the grave. Here's a faith that knows, even though it doesn't know all. And it knows because it knows Jesus, and Jesus is the answer. Saints, however weak, however frail, however faltering, however stumbling your faith is, if it is true faith, In the true Christ, it is well with your soul. You may not even know that it's well with your soul, but it is. If you know Christ, you don't know all. But you know the one who is the answer to whatever it is. You've thrown anchor to Christ with your faith. And however weak your faith is, it doesn't alter Christ with whom you're now in union. It does nothing to shake that. It is well with your soul. Now look at Jesus' answers in this conversation that ensues, and note how He not only powerfully stokes her faith, but He wafts away the noxious smoke of her grief that is gnawing away at that faith. Jesus first simply says, Your brother will rise again. D.A. Carson said, This is a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. Your brother will rise again. This is not a conventional, comforting condolence, though it's easily mistaken as such. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 give us some of the most comforting, not only comforting, but commanded words To give to those who are grieving the loss of one in Christ. We do not want you to be uninformed brothers. About those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage or the New American Standard, comfort one another with these words. Martha takes Jesus' words as just such words. They are not such words. Jesus is not giving the kind of comfort we're commanded to in 1 Thessalonians. He's come to be that comfort. He's not come to promise that comfort in the future. He has come to be that comfort in the here and now for Martha. He has come not to tell her, I will be the resurrection and the life. He's come to tell her, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha says, verse 24, 
I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says to her, I am. You're talking last day. I am the resurrection and the life. That resurrection that you just hold out hope for and comfort for, that is true. And that we're meant to comfort one another concerning. Jesus says, it's present right here. I am the resurrection and the life. And here's how present the resurrection is, not only with Martha, but with everyone who believes right now. Verses 25 and 26. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? If you believe in Jesus, you live even if you die. You live such that you never, in another sense, die even though you die. Jesus has said many times in this gospel that whoever believes in him has eternal life. They already possess it. Spiritually dead sinners turn to life in Christ. The life you have when you believed and trusted Christ is the very resurrection life of Jesus Himself. You died with Him. You rose with Him. You're in union with Him. The life you have is Jesus' life. Resurrection life is not something that awaits you. It's something you already have in Christ. You already possess a life that death cannot touch because death already touched it and lost. You possess a life from the other side of death. Resurrection life. Jesus here turns Martha's attention from focusing on an, less so on an abstract doctrine to himself as the embodiment of that doctrine present with her Right there and then. Doctrine is precious. True doctrine is precious. But don't treat doctrinal truths as things that float out there independently of your God, of Jesus. It is as though the wire connections of Martha's faith are weak. There's there's a gap. And sparks of faith are flying and Jesus is working so that Martha's faith is clamped down on Him. It is not the doctrine of Christ that saves. It is the Christ of doctrine that saves. And that's where faith goes. So whenever you think about these truths that are meant to comfort, don't think of just this truth. Think of it as it is embodied in Christ. Don't just think, I have the hope of resurrection. You have Christ who is the resurrection. Already He is your life. And so see how Jesus brings Martha along, strengthening this faith connection, asking her, do you believe this? I am the resurrection and life. You believe in me, you live even though you die. You live such that you never die. We see this weakness still in Martha's faith as this Episode carries along, but there's perhaps no greater confession in the Gospels than Martha's here. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Some might argue Thomas's confession was greater. My Lord and my God. Let's give proper credit. Thomas was beholding the resurrected Jesus when he made that confession. Martha's confessing, you are the Christ, the Son of God. In the darkness of her grief and her brother's death. Andrew told Peter, we have found the Messiah, 141. Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel, 149. The Samaritans collectively confessed, We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, 441. 
Peter, speaking for the twelve, minus one, said, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Whenever Jesus asked the blind man if he believed in the Son of Man, he simply answered, Lord, I believe. But it's Martha here whose confession syncs up perfectly with John's stated purpose for these signs. It is as though John sees in Martha's confession the very aim of these signs. John 20, 31. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Dear souls, true belief that Jesus is the Christ is a belief that He is the resurrection and the life. And by belief, if you would believe in Him, you receive that resurrection life right here, right now. You receive it not independently of Him. You don't receive forever and eternal life as a thing. You receive it in a person with whom you're put into union. You receive life as you're put into union with the one who died for sinners and rose conquering death. That's what's being extended to you. That's what's being offered to you in this word from God. You're not being offered just life. You're being offered Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Believe on Jesus and you receive Jesus. After her confession, Martha calls for her sister Mary. She calls for Mary because Jesus is called for Mary, verse 28. And she does so privately, which explains the false guesses of her behavior by her comforters in verse 31. And with this, we see that, again, Jesus remains outside of Bethany. Jesus had not yet come into the village. He's not come to go to their home and give comfort. He's come to go to the grave and raise the dead. Mary quickly rises to go to Jesus, verse 29. And her words are the same as Mary's, but her behavior is different. She falls at His feet. It's striking that every time we see Mary... That's where she is. In that episode in Luke, she's at his feet learning. In the next chapter, she's at his feet anointing them and wiping them with her hair. And here she falls at his feet expressing grief, sorrow. Mary's words are identical to Martha's, but Jesus's are not. In fact, it seems he has no words. With Martha's interactions, I think we see a beautiful and gracious intellectual response of our Lord to grief. With Mary's interactions, we see a beautiful and gracious emotional response of our Lord to this grief. Note all the emotional language building up in, in this episode, verses 31 through 35. When the Jews who are with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to the place where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have You laid Him? They said to Him, Lord, come and see Jesus wept. How did our Lord emotionally respond? He was angry and he wept. Why was he angry? Why did he weep? There's a lot of confusion as to Jesus' responses. Was he angry? You might even ask. The words you have as deeply moved in the ESV, you have a footnote, says it could be translated indignant. The image behind that word is, is that of a snorting of a horse. It has the idea of snorting with anger. 
Elsewhere, the word is translated scolded, sternly warned. And coupled with this, we're told Jesus is greatly troubled. I don't think that really gives justice. The the idea is of shaking, of, of being emotionally moved so much that physically it manifests itself. Why is Jesus angry? Some venture that it's because of their unbelief. Jesus looks at the unbelief and it it angers him. I don't think that Jesus is angry at their weeping for unbelief. I think he's angry at why they are weeping and grieving. Jesus beholds the enemy of the bride that he's been given. The last enemy to be defeated. And he sees the grief and the pain that that enemy has caused, and it angers him. The Amplified Bible reads this way. When Jesus saw her sobbing, and the Jews who came with her also sobbing, he was deeply moved in spirit to the point of anger at the sorrow caused by death and was troubled. B.B. Warfield wrote a masterful article titled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord, where he takes up, among others, this particular instance with piercing insight. It is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death, and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words again, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but as indeed it is presented throughout the whole narrative, a a decisive instance and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression. And under the impulse of these feelings has wrought out our redemption. He goes to the tomb enraged at that foe that is seeking to devour his beloved. Why does Jesus weep? Again, some will answer he weeps for their unbelief. He's angry at their unbelief, he weeps at their unbelief. I don't think that's the answer either. I don't think he's weeping for Lazarus's death either. Indeed, the saddest reality in this whole situation might be Lazarus having to come back. C.S. Lewis is right to ask, they call Stephen the first martyr. Hadn't Lazarus the raw ordeal? For the glory of God, Stephen was called to leave this world. For the glory of God, Lazarus was called back. Why does Jesus weep? I think verse 33 explains it. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Paul commands us in Romans twelve fifteen to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Why was Jesus weeping? Because those he loved were weeping. He wept with them. As truly man, if Jesus could celebrate at a wedding with his first sign, then he could mourn at a funeral with this final sign. He rejoiced with those who rejoiced, and he wept with those who wept. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, Paul tells us, If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. And we need to remember that that language of members, church membership, refers to members of a body, parts of a body. Paul goes on to say, now you are are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And here we see in His humanity, even the head of this body weeps when the body weeps. 
Isaiah 53.3 tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I think we, we relegate that too often simply to Golgotha and the cross. when we don't realize that all His living days, Jesus was a man of sorrows, the second Adam, walking among us, sharing in our grief and sorrow. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 tells us, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And the author goes on to say, Hebrews 4, 14, following, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because our Lord wept, He can wipe away all tears. His sorrow speaks to your comfort. Saints, Learn here from Jesus how to comfort the grieving. Sometimes, sometimes, the grief of our friends calls for an intellectual response. It calls for words. Sometimes the grief of our dear ones calls for nothing more than for us to weep with them. An emotional response. The Jews see Jesus weeping and they have two thoughts. Some appear touched. See how he loved him. Others are perplexed, perhaps even perturbed. Couldn't he who healed the blind man have healed Lazarus? And like Martha's words, there's a prophetic bent to their response. Yes, Jesus loves Lazarus. But his love is not going to be displayed most mightily by his tears but by His raising Lazarus from the dead. If Jesus has only the love of sympathy, His weeping could not comfort us. His tears could bring us no joy. And yes, Jesus could have kept this man from dying, but the point is not to do a sign on par with the healing of the blind man. The point is to do something greater. The point is to make manifest He is the resurrection and the life. And so, as Jesus approaches Lazarus now, verses 38 through 40, we're told once more that he's angry, verse 38, as he comes to the tomb. And he commands the stone to be taken away. Martha protests, there will be an odor. Jesus rebukes her. They're not here to smell stink. They're here to see glory. Did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? Of what glory did Jesus speak with Martha? Your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. That's the glory about to be made manifest. Saints, this is how the rebukes of Christ work. Don't don't quench them. Our Lord's convicting grace directs our attention away from the smell of death to the glory of resurrection. Whatever sickness, whatever pain, whatever trial, the rebuke of your Lord that comes in the midst of that speaks to glory that awaits. And so after the stone is rolled away, Jesus lifts up his eyes and he prays, and he prays to be overheard, verses 41 through 42. And he says that to his father, we've already spoken about this. I know that you've heard me. Always hear me. This is why Jesus could tell the disciples in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death, it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus had told his disciples, in chapter, or told the Jews rather, in chapter 5, 19 through 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him. 
that you may marvel. The purpose of this work is so that they might marvel at the Son who is the resurrection and the life. And then contrasting this posture of humility before the Father, we see this posture of authority before the grave. Lazarus, come out. Edward Clink points out, this is the only time in the Gospels where we see Jesus shout. While we see Jesus shouted out, shouted at often. We see shouting at Jesus. This is the only time we see Jesus shout. So he goes on to say, when Jesus shouts... It is for the purpose of giving life. When the Jews shout, it is for the purpose of taking life. In heavenly irony, it is because the crowds would cry out, crucify him, that Jesus could shout, Lazarus, come out. It's because they shouted, crucify him, that Jesus will return And call for his own. And they will come forth. When Jesus commands the dead. His words don't fall on deaf ears. They create hearing. Jesus told the Jews in John 5.25. Truly, truly I say to you. An hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. And by his word Jesus is right now Calling the dead to life. That might be you. You may be hearing. By the word of Christ. He is the resurrection and life. And you're believing that. And that belief is his calling you out of the tomb. Of your sins. Though the disciples missed it in the moment. They were prepped now. To journey to Jerusalem. Knowing the one they're following, to die with Him. That's how they've resolved to go to Jerusalem. They're now prepped to know that the one they're following, to die with Him, is the resurrection and the life. But we can better see, by God's grace, we're prepared to make the rest of this journey through John, knowing Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That the one who has called us to take up our cross and follow Him, even to our death, He's the resurrection. He's the life. We can look at our sufferings in this way. Whatever sickness, whatever trial, whatever pain you are enduring, you go through in union with one, the one who is the resurrection and the life. You already have resurrection life. When your faith falters, when it's tinged by grief, whenever the last enemy to be defeated tries to bury your faith, don't simply remember the hope of the resurrection. Remember He who is the resurrection and the life. Look to Him who was outraged at your foe, and defeated it. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope whenever you hear Paul say that now, he says, Christ, you hear, through our Lord Jesus, the resurrection 
and the life. Because to believe he is the Christ is to believe he is the resurrection and the life. Sinner, this blessed hope is set before you today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on he who is the resurrection and the life. Believe on the one who died for sin and rose conquering death. Believe and live. Live with that very life that burst from the tomb on the third day. Holy Father, take our faith up now like you did Martha's. Waft away the smoke of our grief and sorrow that's gnawing at it. Teach us how to weep, but not as those who have no hope. Do not look at some doctrine abstractly, but to realize the hope that we have is present with us right now. That we have your Son who is the resurrection and the life, and we have it now. We will never die. We will never see death. We have eternal life. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then ultimately knowing He will return. And all will be made new. Father, not only kindle the faith of your saints afresh. But cause this life to raise the dead even now among us with faith. In the strong name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.